Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we're replaying our June 23rd Bank of Texas Speaker Series event entitled Texas as a Logistics Hub. The event was hosted by Randy Baird of CBRE National Partners and featured a lineup of Graydon Bouchelon of Nuveen Real Estate, Patricia Gibson of Banner Oak Capital Partners, Mace McClatchy of the Black Creek Group, and Dale Todd of Stream Realty Partners. They talked about why Texas is considered a central transshipment base in the logistics supply chain, with the necessary amenities and infrastructure to ignite the state's growth in this area and easily collaborate with national and international borders. We're grateful to our panelists for their time and would like to thank all of the members who attended the event. We'd also like to recognize our event sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, and the Dallas Morning News for their support of Speaker Series. If you're new to the show and joining us for the first time, please subscribe to get all new episodes right to your mobile device. We publish a variety of event replays like this one, roundtable discussions, and exclusive interviews almost every week. TrackCast is available on most major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow Trek on social media as well. For the latest news and updates from around the organization, you can find links to each of our handles in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's a replay of Bank of Texas Speaker Series, Texas as a Logistics Hub, right here on TrackCast. Welcome, welcome. When Michael Crywicky sits down, we will get the program started. Rick, if you and Kate want to come on up here. Um, we're going to get this rolling today. It's great to see everybody. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Mike Ablon and uh, to all of our members and guests, welcome. Glad to, to see you here today. It is our second event of 2021, and I cannot wait till 2022 when we have 50 of these. So it's good to see everybody. Um, Bank of Texas Speaker Series, Texas as a logistics hub. The illustrious Randy Baird is gonna run us through a great program. He promises to be full of jokes and humor because industrial is a great subject. Um, before we get started with the Bank of Series uh, today, uh, I wanna thank Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and of course the Dallas Morning News, and Kate and Rick, if you wanna come on up here, Rick, and we can keep it rolling. Kate. Good morning, everybody. I'm Kate Cavanaugh with Stuart Title. We're the series sponsor uh, for the speaker series, and we are thrilled to see all your faces today. I'm sure people have asked you this before, but just look around the room at the full tables and who's here, and think about where we were just 12 months ago. And it was, as I, I think my script says, it was a pandemic hibernation. So it's nice to see um, more than eyes and faces and smiles, and um, glad you could join Trek this morning. As we're talking about industrial, I want to use, uh, by the way, I got this script five minutes ago because I'm really here from Melissa Eastman, who runs our region, but she had something at work. So I'm going to go a little off script so I don't read to you. I think the best analogy I've heard for the Dallas-Fort Worth market is actually, I can credit to my husband, Chip Cavanaugh with Munch Hart, who's back there, who says it's like somebody shook a beer can for a year, or you could make a Diet Coke, and then just popped the top, and everything's shooting up and frothing. And as we know, that will all stop 
and it'll stop shooting up in the air, but it doesn't look like it's anytime soon, and it certainly doesn't look like it is for industrial. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth as a relocation um, favorite among company headquarters, as an intermodal, as a region that has some strong commercial, some of these strongest commercial airports has made it a draw for industrial investors. We have great institutional capital across the board, and we have developers um, that you can't count on four hands. We are very, very fortunate to be where we are today, and we've got some great expertise that's going to tell us a little bit more about um, the industrial activity that's going on here. In addition to that, here we are in Texas with our deep seaports and our rail facilities. So when does that come to a close? We don't know, but we don't think it'll be anytime soon. The pandemic was a silver lining and that it shot up quickly the online demand and now we've got everybody wants a number two warehouse. We have new kinds of warehouses we're looking at. We'll hear more about that today as well. We're about to get ready for a panel, but before we do that, I want to introduce Rick Perdue, who is the 2021 Fight Night Chair for Community Investment. Thanks, Karen. Um, hopefully everybody in this room knows Fight Night 2021 is on. It's going to be a live event. I got asked that the other day. Is this going to be virtual? But no, it's absolutely going to be live. It's September 30th at the Anatole. And I uh, can't tell you I'm excited about that. It's exciting to be back uh, here live again. So very good news. Sponsorships are officially sold out. Uh, big effort there. Thank you. Obviously, a lot of people in this room that did that. Um, we've broken the record, all-time record on sponsorship, so uh, fantastic news um, for Trek. Now that leaves table sales. We have quite a few uh, tables left to sell. Uh, I beg you guys, please go ahead and, and say yes, and then please uh, send in uh, the check for the table. I do think they will sell out. Um, we've got a, a great uh, table sales uh, group a chip, and I, I don't know if I, I've seen Chase here as well. So um, if they haven't called you, you'll probably get a call. But uh, if you would proactively reach out to Trek and buy a table, it'd be greatly appreciated. Given what's happened in the last year with the loss of fundraising and the loss of fight night and, and fall gala, uh, we really, really need this to be a, a very successful fight night. Um, so again, please be generous. Please say yes to table sales. And when the ALC folks call, please uh, be generous as well. So I, I genuinely think this is going to be the best fight night ever to uh, Kate's um, thought on it kind of popping. I think with all the built, built up, pent up demand for getting out and, and interacting, I think it's going to be a phenomenal evening. So please buy a table. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Rick. Um, now, if y'all didn't notice, Chip Cavanaugh just got two shout-outs. I'm going to put a shout-out to Chip, so you have the trifecta. Chip, how you doing? Thank you, Chip. Okay. Um, so, who here went, was in the ALC class, not this year, but last year? Raise your hand if you're here. Um, and not that many, but we opened on Saturday, cut the ribbon on the South Point Community Market. It is a food store next to, uh, on MLK in the Southern Sector. And that was really driven by the Catalyst Project and driven by the ALC class of last year. 
It is addressing food insecurity in Dallas. It was a monumental little task, which leads up to big things. So let's give them a round of applause. That's called making a difference where it really, really matters. And who here is from the ALC class of this year? Um, if you're here, we look forward to your project. If you haven't bought raffle tickets, there's one in the back. Get that hand up. There you go in the back. Um, please buy raffle tickets. And Rick, did you say September 30th? Was that the date, September 30th? I think I heard September 30th. Was it September 30th? Boys and girls, September 30th, fight night. So I'm Mike Ablon, and that's all you really want to hear from me, but I got a few more notes. Um, again, thank you to Bank of Texas. Thank you to Stuart Title. Thank you to Dallas Moore News. And ahead of time, Randy and the panel, thank you for bringing your wisdom, your thoughts to today um, about what you're going to speak about. It's quite important. Um, prior to the dislocation that happened last year, with the pandemic, Dallas was clearly on a searing path in the industrial market, leasing, construction. And as everybody here knows from your personal experience, we bought even more online. That didn't start e-commerce, but it clearly showed us a large portion of what e-commerce can do and how it will affect our lives. And that really brings you back to the industrial sector. And it really further ignited a piece of our real estate and economy that was on fire. And as we joyfully emerge from COVID, we're gonna see that continue on. That's unquestionable. It's gonna be a growing sector in the commercial markets and a growing sector on how it affects our lives. So really excited about having this discussion today. It's quite relevant. Um, production and manufacturing hasn't just traditionally led to industrial. It's also a forerunner for what's going on in our broader sector and in our community, in our city. And that growing here is fortified Dallas as a crossroads in the country. And that's very exciting. So for today's speaker series, this promises to live up to our mission at Trek as a premier educational provider for you and help us explore and analyze what is out there, what can we be doing, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about that today from our panel. Um, last notes, um, it does need to be said that if you study economics, you know that manufacturing is an economic leader. It's an economic indicator. And we can watch what these industrial experts are doing because they're tapped into that. So there's a lot to gain from today. Really looking forward to hearing that and how it might benefit our city, our workforce, our economy, and how we grow as a future. So today's program features insights from our four experts who are knowledgeable, experienced, and know about the driving growth that we're gonna see in this sector for all of us. Very excited about that. Moderated the, today will be Randy Baird, Vice Chairman and Regional Leader for CBRE National Partners. Uh, I wanna get this right. A group of market-leading professionals. Randy, did you know that about yourself? Um, they're in five key logistics areas around the country. For those of you all a little less familiar with industrial, um, it does break into sectors. You kind of have a New Jersey, a Southern California, Chicago, Atlanta, and, of course, North Texas. Those are the leading hubs across the country. We look forward to hearing from Randy, who is part of a group that lead that at CBRE and 
with no further ado, Randy, if you and the other panelists want to come up here, let's, uh, let's get the show on the road. Thank you for being here today, and I really hope you enjoy the show. had to stave off a panelist uh, revolt earlier this morning when we found out there would not be a table here and we couldn't wear our COVID pajamas. Who wears pants anymore? So it, it, it really is good to see everybody in a room together like this coming out of the pandemic. Uh, I don't think any of us envisioned that our first time in the room would be up here in the king and queen chairs, but uh, we're, we're, we are all excited to be here with you today. Uh, and it's, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Bank of Texas Speaker Series event. Uh, and today's topic, as Mike has mentioned, Texas as a logistics hub. Uh, the industrial and logistics sector in Texas and the US in general, is, it is the most popular asset class in the world. Fundamentals are stronger than they've ever been in history. And for example, here are a few key national statistics. Vacancy at the end of Q1, 4.4%, never been that low. Uh, nationally, and this is important to all the developers in the room and others, asking rents finished Q1 with a year-over-year -year increase of 7.1%, and it's averaged 6.8 over the past five years. Combined net absorption in uh, 4Q20, 1Q21, approximately 220 million square feet. That six months represents a full year in a very robust period leading up to it. Now 44 consecutive quarters of positive absorption across the US. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth was the top market for net absorption in Q1 at 10.3 million square feet. That, that represents in a year half of what we've been absorbing in the robust years leading up to it. And we can follow up with more reports on this, but this is a good backdrop uh, for our panel to get started. And since we only have about 45 minutes, uh, and we want to allow for some audience questions at the end, we're gonna ask the panelists uh, to keep the answers succinct uh, and to the point. So, uh, and I'll give a brief introduction of the panelists here today. And we do have an exceptional panel. We have Gray Bouchelon, head of industrial at Nuveen. Patricia Gibson, who is a founding principal and CEO of Banner Oak Capital. Dale Todd on the end. Dale is principal at Stream Realty's Industrial Development Services Group. And Mace McClatchy, uh, market officer for the South Central Region at Black Creek Group. Thank you all for agreeing to do this today. So let's get started. Uh, there's, there's no question that Texas and Dallas-Fort Worth in particular is a dominant national and regional logistics and distribution hub. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is, blazed, is blessed with rapid population growth, a central location in the U.S., and a robust logistics infrastructure. So let's discuss how these features impact our market in DFW. And I'll start with Pat. 
In your view, specifically, how does Dallas-Fort Worth's logistics infrastructure, the interstate freeways, rail, airports, specifically impact our market? Sure. Well, Randy, I mean, as you mentioned, there's a number of things from a macro perspective that are um, extremely favorable in Dallas as it's home to over 20 Fortune 500 companies. It has, a, as you mentioned, a very pro-business environment and central location. Um, and then just a growing population of millennials who are driving a lot of e-commerce. But what people don't realize is how robust the transportation network is. Um, and as a result of that, many firms do view DFW as a place where they have to be from a logistics perspective. And so you start with our airport. I mean, it generates $37 billion of activity um, on an annual basis. It is, again, as a result of the central location, you can be in all the, all the major markets, including the coastal markets, within a three and a half hour period of time. Um, and it's the ninth largest cargo airport. And so firms really view that they need to be here if they're gonna be relevant in the industrial sector. Um, when you look at rail, um, we have three major uh, rail lines and those can get goods anywhere in the United States um, within 48 hours. Um, and so, you know, again, a real positive. And then finally, the highway system is extremely strong. We have an international port um, and an intermodal uh, terminal that allows access to the ports of LA and Long Beach. So when you sort of marry all that, it's just such a great story. Yeah, it is, and thank you for that. And Gray, similarly, if, if you can share your view on the, the impact of Dallas-Fort Worth's central location in the U.S., maybe uh, dovetailing with Pat's comments, and our rapid population growth, how are these factors impacting our market? Yeah, Randy, we can definitely talk about population growth. Um, I first want to thank Trek for hosting this event. Um, I also want to thank the McClatchy family for donating their formal living room furniture to the event. <laughs> And um, Very nice. I, I, I think <laughs> what I would say about population growth, everybody loves to talk about Austin, our friends in Austin. Percentage growth has been at the top of the charts for well over a decade, according to the U.S. Census. But I, I don't think people focus enough on just the actual amount of bodies coming into Dallas-Fort Worth. So on a 10-year horizon, number one in the country. On a three-year horizon, number one in the country. And you can take all the folks that have moved to Austin, Raleigh and Nashville add them up over a decade, still less than the folks that have moved into Dallas-Fort Worth over that same period of time. So I, I think population growth, most of us know this, is if, if it's not the major, it's one of the two major drivers of industrial absorption. So big focal point for us when we evaluate the market and, and obviously you know, great for our, our home city as well. Absolutely, we're, we're blessed to be in industrial and in real estate in Dallas for sure. And so, Mace, with, with all of these positive influences on our market, uh, what does it mean for tenant demand? We know, we know that it increases tenant demand, but uh, just in terms of industry served, building type sizes, suite sizes, uh, building specifications, what is the impact of all these demand drivers on, on those needs? Yeah, great question. I, I think all of the above has to go up. I think you've got people who are, when you, with the population and infrastructure, just demand. I mean, we all know the absorption statistics. We all know people are moving here. It's creating, you know, growing industries, you know, citywide, nationwide. I, I think we're seeing tenant demand across a wide 
you know, array of, of industries. It's not just Amazon. Um, so we're seeing activity in, you know, we've developed some buildings and owned some buildings that can demise down as little as 20,000 feet. That's very robust right now. We've got buildings as big as a million feet, and that activity is strong as well. So I think across the spectrum right now, everybody's active, everybody's trying to capture you know, their market share of this demand. So I, I don't see really any industrial space that's not seeing robust demand right now. All shapes and sizes. And Dale, you, you have a lot of experience in multiple markets across the country. Uh, based on the influences and the impacts that um, we just discussed, what are the sort of the differences and similarities between Dallas-Fort Worth and other regional or national distribution hubs like, say, Atlanta, Chicago, northern New Jersey, Inland Empire, and so forth? Uh, sure. First of all, so good to see everyone. I was, I was done with Zoom panels, so it's nice to have one in person. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, the big five, uh, uh, among the big five markets, I think, um, you know, uh, Dallas and Atlanta kind of stand out for the population growth story that overlays the logistics story um, that Graham Pat mentioned. You know, I think if you look at the uh, top line demographics of, say, a, a Chicago or LA Metro, um, or even um, New York, New Jersey, you don't see that uh, population growth overlay. And the reason why that's significant is you know, in those two markets, Dallas and Atlanta, that population growth includes a big chunk of that e-commerce target demographic. And, and so that's, I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, you know, outsized um, absorption, especially post-pandemic with um, the demand for e-commerce. Uh, you know, LA uh, and uh, New York Metro are much more kind of port-driven, big populations in place. Uh, big e-commerce target markets in place. So those markets are for sure significant, but they're more pure uh, logistics in terms of their demand profile. And in Chicago, is interesting. It's got a little bit of the inland port dynamic like Dallas, not so much the population growth story, but you know people need to be there because the labor is there, the infrastructure is there. Um, and it's just, it, a lot of investors have an interesting love-hate relationship with Chicago where you know, every now and then they don't like it, but they have to be there. It's just, it's a critical market and yeah. we, all, we all need to play there. Thank you. I'm gonna to toss it back to, uh, to Gray. Uh, in your long and distinguished career while we're throwing out compliments, uh, have you ever seen the fundamentals and the key metrics be this strong? And how long can it last? Well, thank you for the compliments. Um, I think Don't your necktie looks great. Um, um, I would tell you that uh, it's never been as strong fundamentally as what we're seeing now, and, and it's really not even close. When you look back to the last period of really sustained growth and strength in the market, you know that might have been that 06, 07 arena, and, and you had a different driver behind a lot of the absorption. Today, it feels like there's this broad-based confluence of things driving fundamental outperformance. I think we're seeing our tenants, we have over 1,100 tenants across 90 million feet in 32 markets. It's a big cross-section to evaluate. And we're seeing really more commonly today 
organic expansion activity from our existing tenant base than, than we've ever seen. And I think the other thing that's really intriguing to, to take note of is it's not just e-commerce that's driving some of this, right? E-commerce grabs the headlines, but we're seeing a lot of food users. We're seeing a lot of healthcare uses. We're seeing construction materials coming back. And I think when you see all those uses converging at the same time and holding more inventory because of supply chain glitches, that bodes really, really well. And so CBRE, Randy, which you may know this, performed some white paper research last year that said just a 5% increase in US inventory levels could lead to 500 million square feet of additional absorption. We're believers um, that that's likely to take place and we think it's already underway. So Obviously we are too. <laughs> so. It's gonna continue. And Pat, I'd like to follow up with you on this. Just uh, get your commentary on the, the rental rate growth and absorption numbers and more specifically, how do these metrics influence you as a developer? Sure. Yeah, well, just to bolt on to what Gray was saying, I mean, I think in addition to a lot of the micro factors, you know, the macro picture is really looking, looking positive. We've got synchronized growth across a number of different areas. We've got growing GDP, which obviously drives um, industrial demand. Um, as, as we said, you know, e-commerce, COVID really pushed a lot of e-commerce uh, sales forward. It accelerated it. It made it more attractive. And, and there's a larger cohort of people who are now buying things online as a result of COVID. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, you know, also to the inventories, you know, a lot of uh, firms are keeping higher levels of inventory to guard against supply chain disruption. And so that's increasing the demand for industrial space. Um, and then on the, you know, on the supply side, there's a, there are a lot of barriers. Um, it's getting increasingly hard to develop. Um, land prices are, are high, replacement costs are going up. It's very, uh, you know, construction costs have, have really dramatically increased over this last year, year and a half. Um, and so when we look at the supply and demand fundamentals, um, we think it's really strong. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So. Um, we're still really bullish on, on development. The way we approach it is focusing on having uh, teams who are experts in their local markets and really understand the core industrial markets um, to be able to find interesting sites and work through creative solutions so that they can um, develop great product. Great. So I feel like we're just kind of going down the row here. Mace, uh, next one is for you. Uh, you and your company are very hands-on with your tenants. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the, the tenants were impacted during COVID? Did any ask for rent relief? Um, and then how does it look as we're coming out or as we have come out of COVID? Uh, and do you expect to see a continuation of rental rate growth beyond 2021? Sure. Uh, we are very hands-on with our tenants. I did a sneak look at the... Uh, the roster before I came here, we have currently 450 tenants in our portfolio nationwide. Uh, I think April and May of 2020 were just, you know, a head spin for everybody. Nobody knew what this thing was. Nobody knew how long it was going to last. Everybody went home thinking this was going to be a great two-week vacation, time to recharge. Uh, so we, we did have some requests. We had 17 companies uh, that we, we had a lot of people ask fishing. We ended up granting forbearance to 17 out of those uh, 450 tenants. 
Uh, all of them have fully repaid or are on track to fully repay by the end of the year. Uh, no additional requests. Current industrial collections are over 99% right now in our portfolio. So from a renewal standpoint, I, I, I don't see any concern really. We're, we're not really seeing pushback on these rate hikes. I mean, you know, there's some complaining about it and some disbelief, but at the end of the day, you very politely say, look, we, we understand your concern. You know, we understand rent's going up. We get it, you know, we're all doing right by, you know, our investors and you're doing right by your company. We, we encourage you to go see the market and see what's available for you and, you know, let's have a conversation later. So we're seeing renewal activity actually try to get well in advance of the expiration date, which is an awkward conversation when you're telling a broker that calls, like, I'm not ready to talk about that. You know, 12 months ago, 18 months ago, I think we would be addressing, you know, expirations nine to 12 months in advance. And now we're just, we're seeing rents grow at such a rapid pace and, you know, the availability of competitive space, at least to, you know, what our portfolio is, is so, you know, limited that we are being very patient. Thank you, Mace. And uh, for Dale, uh, Stream now has industrial developments all over the country. Uh, if you could just kind of tell us about your top markets and uh, are you focusing on light industrial or bulk and seeing better uh, results in one area versus the other? Um, light <clears throat> excuse me, get, still getting the rust off here. Light industrial versus uh, bulk. I don't think we really have a preference. We'll build whatever we could lease and sell, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and there's demand, um, you know, depending on market. It's obviously market-driven. Some markets skew uh, one way or another. Uh, but no, we'll, we'll do it all. Um, in terms of target markets, you know, for stream, um, the, the big five, except New Jersey, um, immediately are, are probably our main focus, mm -hmm. focal points. Um, you know, I'll work my way to New Jersey eventually, but um, not yet. We need to open an office there first, and that will happen in due time. Um, and then beyond that, um, you know, Nashville is a, is a focus for us. Um, we have a presence in Charlotte, uh, the mid-Atlantic region. Um, we'll also do, um, uh, do a lot. Obviously, there's no place like home, so all the Texas markets are strongholds for stream. Um, and then, you know, if I had to predict, we'll probably be in Phoenix at some point as well. That's another good market. That's, that's on our radar. So just to follow up on that a little bit, you mentioned Nashville and some other uh, somewhat emerging markets. Are there any other emerging markets that have caught your eye? For instance, El Paso has a 2.8% vacancy rate. So what are your sort of your overall thoughts on the so-called secondary markets? I don't want to give Black Creek all my secrets. So, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, yeah, that's interesting. I think, I think this is my view. I think any, um, any market that's on some of those big corridors, so take El Paso is on the 10 and never been there. So 25, is that what's there? I don't know, the interstate highways. So any market, you know, on, um, on major corridors with a, with a significant labor pool, I think is gonna be in play. You take 95, um, at, pick a market with a big population that's not in New Jersey, and it's probably uh, a market with potential. Um, and you could say the same about, you know, 85 and 75, and you know, pick your markets across the country. And so um, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking for places like that. Um, there's a lot of, 
it's a competitive bidder pool out there for land. And, um, but I think the tenant demand is there. Tenants, as you know, are driven by labor and transportation and just going ahead of the curve and trying to figure out where those next spots are that they can go and not compete um, for labor. They don't like competing for labor any more than we like competing for land, so. You, you mentioned land, and, and uh, I'll just kind of throw it to the group here. In, in Dallas-Fort Worth and for infill sites in particular, <coughs> is there any such thing as overpaying for land right now? The fact that you're asking that question makes me uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, look, like infill sites that are highly desirable and, and zoned appropriately are going to continue to be, I think, a focal point for development going forward. And I think historically they may have been too granular for some developers to focus on, not to mention the hair that exists around entitlement. But I think the margin is there when you look at the rent premiums that, that come in with those locations, right? You used to say in Dallas-Fort Worth, how am I going to redevelop that infill site if I'm only going to get six bucks? Mm -hmm. But if it's a delivery station for a big e-commerce user, they'll pay you two, two and a half X that for that location. And so I think it's a very viable storyline going forward, but the lead time to put that land into production is, is going to get longer. Even in Texas, where we don't talk about entitlement very often, I can see that evolving as we go yeah. forward. Yeah. And I'd also say, I mean, the metrics that you used to use to kind of comp out land sales with other, you know, with other comps and use rent comps, you, you can't do that anymore mm -hmm. um, because you're, you're, you're breaking new territory. And so it's really about having the conviction that those tenants are gonna be there. And, you know, as you say, they're, uh, occupancy costs are a relatively small percentage of their overall logistics cost, and so they're willing to pay two to three times and aren't constrained by what the last guy paid. I think we're in a very interesting spot right now where historically we've used rents to kind of dictate what the cost is. You know, it was very commodity-based. You knew, you know, if it was between $2 and $3 on a land foot, you could make it work. And, you know, shell was going to be this, and you know everybody backed into a yield on cost based on the rent. Now, I feel like we're using the cost to determine the rent, which is an interesting place to be. But when you've seen steel up three and a half times in a six-month period, and land pricing, you know, you know what historically was a three to four-dollar site is now a nine to fifteen-dollar site. You, you know, rents can't do anything but go up because those yield on, those, those same rents applied to that cost basis, you wouldn't build that building. Yeah. So we'll see if it works. I mean, I, I, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable to, you know, to look at it that way. And, you know, the yield spread on, you know, people are developing to a yield spread kind of independent of the rent. Um, so we'll see how it all plays out. It's a good time to be a land broker as well right now. <laughs> um, Gray, you uh, at Nuveen, you do uh, a sizable amount of both developments and acquisitions. And as sort of your targeted focus in today's environment, are you seeking to do more or less on one side versus the other, acquisitions versus development? Where do you see the, the best opportunities? I mean, I, I look back and we have been acquisitions focused, right? So we've, we've, acquired or built 4.9 billion since the beginning of 2019 across the US. And, and of that, only 
600 to 700 has been development, right? And so 15-ish percent looking back. As we look forward, I think that moves to that 30 to 40 percent, mm -hmm. more than doubling um, as a percentage of our overall, you know, volume. And, and the reality is um, there's just less to choose from on the supply side from, that, that at least we find attractive on valuation. I think there's plenty of opportunity as far as deals in circulation. You're a busy guy, as you know, and that's a good thing for the market, but we're not totally on board with where those values are falling, and so development is kind of this refuge where we still think there's adequate margin for, for upside. So going forward, it, it, it's a, a more substantial focus for us without question. Good. So, <clears throat> Mesa, at, at Black Creek, historically, your investors have been um, shareholders of the non-traded REIT shares, and, and now with the acquisition by Ares, um, I would assume that you're... Sure, that's public? <laughs> Is that public? Yes. Good. <laughs> you learned it here. Yeah. Late-breaking news. So in introducing more sovereigns and pension fund investors uh, and seeing really running the full gamut of investors, uh, in your mind, what, what do you think makes industrial real estate real, the, one of the most preferred investment options in the entire investment universe? In the entire investment universe, uh, I don't know. Um, and I think what people have historically been drawn to industrial is kind of kept it a, you know, best kept secret. I mean, it's typically low cost of rollover. You know, people can understand just the, the economic engine that is, you know, the United States and, the, you know, all those things we've already talked about, population growth infrastructure. So, you know, it's definitely not sexy. You know, we don't get to, you know, see a lot of these beautiful office buildings with cafeterias and, you know, all these amenities. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, in my mind, like, it's just a very solid investment for people to build their portfolios around. And, you know, unfortunately, I guess for an acquisition guy, we used to kind of fly under the radar, you know, when it came to people who were, you know, not as concerned with yield and basis, you know, you, based on a resource, uh, you know, deployment issue. So, but now with pricing getting to where it is, building sites continuing to grow, we're seeing a lot more, you know, people get into the industrial side that you know historically didn't have the time and effort to focus on you know a forty dollar you know building in GSW you know is now a hundred and twenty dollar building in GSW and that's a lot easier to deploy capital into. So um, I think it'll always be a favorite asset class. Again, uh, you know it doesn't make a lot of headlines. Although with e-commerce and the you know uh, presence of Amazon, it's getting a lot more attention and makes a lot more headlines these days. So just as a follow-up, because you've, you've been exposed to transactions both large and small, uh, 2020 capital markets volume for industrial was almost the same as 2019, which was an all-time high, in spite of being in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, do you think that was because of large portfolio sales or more uh, one-off type transactions? Uh, do investors enjoy the ability to acquire mass in one fell swoop or uh, piece them together 
uh, more like you were doing and continue to do at Black Creek? Yeah, I think you could answer that question better than me. I mean, we do both, um, we do both style transactions. You know, I think we, we did a lot more volume in 2020 than anticipated on a one-off sector. Uh, you know, we got the chance to really, you know, focus on, you know, I'm not gonna say we were an early mover because it was, you know, such a short, condensed period of time where everybody was looking around at each other going, what is this? But we, you know, immediately started looking at our best-in-class buildings, best-in-class location, you know, if there is any sort of arbitrage, let's capture it now. So I think it was probably both. Um, you know, we definitely got accustomed to seeing three, four, six, you know, large-scale transactions. I know you guys are working on a handful yourselves. Um, you know, it feels like 2015 was the record for that. And then, you know, 2019 was another big year with Liberty and IPT and some of these others. So um, I think we'll see both. I, I think, you know, in order to really capture value, you know, when I first got in the industrial business, not a lot of companies had a presence in Dallas. They would cover it from the East Coast or the West Coast. And that became very inefficient, and then people started diversifying and putting offices in Chicago, in Dallas, in Denver, so that, you know, I mean, real estate still very much is boots on the ground, and if you know the brokerage community and the development community, you know, it feels like you have a leg up, unless you're, you know, as opposed to just sitting there on the coast waiting for the phone to ring. Um, so I think we'll continue to see large companies do smaller and smaller deals, historically compared to yeah. what they've done. Yeah. And that may be a guy who would only do a $100 million deal, which we didn't see very often in Dallas, Texas, you know, will now do a $50 million deal, which, you know, from a square footage standpoint is substantially less than what he was doing, he or she was doing four or five years ago. Right. And just to be clear, we like transactions of all sizes. So, <laughs> Pat, uh, we, uh, it's you know no question we've continued to see cap rate compression going all the way back to to 2012, um, and cap rates can vary by geography and say Class A versus Class B. But do you expect to see continued cap rate compression? Well, you look at, um, we're obviously in a very low yield environment and continue to be. Um, I think what's been driving the incredible cap rate compression that we've seen um, is just capital flows. Um, there are just so many investors that are looking for income producing assets um, and there's just a dearth of, of opportunity there. And then you combine that on the industrial side with just the tremendous desire to be in that space and it's hard to accumulate industrial, as you, as you know, and that's why a lot of these portfolio transactions are taking place. And so, you know, there's just capital all over the globe that wants to be in and have access to industrial pipeline, and, and, I, and I don't see that stopping. I wouldn't, I would expect that cap rates could drift even lower. We were just talking um, before the, we started, uh, Gray and I, about a transaction that, you know, it just had so, a large transaction, had so much interest, and, um, you know, for, for not B, B plus or B minus quality, um, still getting on a overall basis relatively low cap rates. And so um, I don't think they're going to go much lower, but I don't see them popping up anytime soon. I'm, I'm just glad that I got to ask the question instead of answering it because I've been wrong for the last five years. Yeah. 
So now I can and, be wrong. And we continue to be surprised to the upside every day. So, Dale, I'd also like to get you to comment as well. Uh, maybe elaborate on the spreads uh, between the yield on cost to derive the lease rate and the uh, exit cap rates, how these this very low required yield on cost is is impacting your, say, your development pro formas. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yield on cost right now is kind of a funny thing. Everyone kind of has their own facts, you know, um, <laughs> whose cost and whose rent and stuff like that. Because we're in, you know, Mace uh, touched on it earlier, uh, we're, in, we're in a kind of an unprecedented time, I guess, where um, you look forward uh, 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 at rent and they kind of have to be higher, costs are trending higher, tenants need space, they're probably gonna have to pay for it because rent is a relatively low proportion of their um, landed cost or their cost of occupancy relative to you know, labor and transportation and, and stuff like that. So um, I think uh, primarily, this is my view again, uh, rent growth is, is probably the biggest driver of cap rate compression, right? So if you can, see rent growth forward in your pro forma, you're more comfortable with a lower cap rate than otherwise. And so if, if, <coughs> if there's that rent growth and cap rates trend lower, then yeah, land prices are gonna go up because we could build to tighter, well not tighter spreads, but we could build to lower returns on costs and we can expect higher rents and, and stuff like that. Very good, now we, uh, we're gonna move to a little lightning round here and we would like to invite questions from the audience when we conclude this round. So we'll keep the, uh, keep the answers short to the extent that we can. Uh, Gray, we'll start with you. And everybody gets to opine. How much longer will the cycle last? Is that a version of the what inning we're in? Kind no. Of. <laughs> <laughs> it's a soccer game. You know, I, I want to answer succinctly, that's challenging, so here's what I'll say. Industrial's run will end when the macroeconomic run ends. So don't bet on industrial to overheat before the macro economy overheats, but you know, if you believe inflation is transitory, good for you, and if you don't, watch interest rates, because everyone talks about rent growth and, and and all these other things that contribute to low cap rates, but you can borrow at 1.6% floating right now. That contributes. So until those go up, the party continues. Pat? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think the main thing that we look at, again, is the fundamentals, the supply-demand balance. It, it feels really good, and we don't see that changing. Um, and then the, on the macro you know, front, you know, to your point, Everything's driven by by the macro economy, but I think industrial will be particularly resilient. Um, so, I don't know. I I think it's got a few more years to go. Mace, I'm kind of hoping somebody puts a number to this, <laughs> so we, so we can judge you in the future. I'm hoping in the example that Melissa gave earlier about the beer can that somebody didn't drop the beer can, they kicked the keg over, and it's just going to keep spinning out and spinning out into perpetuity. <laughs> but. Uh, I, I mean, I don't disagree with anything that they say. I mean, it's hard to, you know, I was a part of a company in 2015 that, you know, completely liquidated its entire portfolio and platform thinking that we were at the peak. Mm -hmm. Really great decision. Uh, so, you know, we've, we all sit here and, you know, 
we're looking at the same fundamentals that everybody else is. I would say where we are now from a equilibrium standpoint is so much lower than where we were in, you know, the, before the financial crisis. I mean, people would hit sub 10% vacancy in Dallas and fire up the development machine. Well, now like it, you know, we have 30 million square feet plus or minus, you know, under construction, most of which is pre-leased, you know, absorption is at all time highs. Like, but we're at sub 6% vacancy in certain parts. And like, I mean, you know, we have certain markets like, like I cover Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City's vacancy, it, which is growing tremendously from a you know, population standpoint is sub 3%. Like, you know, that's just, you got a long way to go before it becomes a tenant's market again. So I, I think, I don't think the music will stop based on oversupply and, you know, real estate fundamentals, you know, like, like we're expecting. You know, it will be some sort of, we didn't see that coming, coming like antitrust laws at Amazon or something like that. Yeah. Still looking for a number, Dale? 10 years. That's what our All performance right. is. Right. <laughs> is that a popular answer? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just, I think we're, we're in the middle of a secular trend um, in terms of the drivers of industrial demand. And so... I, I think we're probably a little bit decoupled from the macro picture as, you know, we, we would have seen in the pandemic. Um, and, you know, you layer on the, the difficulty delivering space and the and supply demand imbalance and stuff like that. I think we have, we have a ways to run. Obviously, that's some developer optimism, but um, I, I really believe that. I think this market's got a lot of legs. And so, yeah, 10 years, I'm yeah. sticking with that. Final answer. All right. <laughs> Okay, and, and I'm going to start with you this time, Dale. In 30 seconds or less, please tell us about your biggest deal last year and your smallest one. <laughs> biggest deal last year was probably the moving bill from New York. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, um, yeah, I didn't, I don't think I did. So be I, before joining Stream, I, I was at JP Morgan and my Biggest deal was probably you know launching the sale of the, the Crescent office building, something like yeah. that. Um, and smallest deal was probably my moving bill. Mace? My biggest deal last year, we took a decent sized land position in South Dallas for a uh, you know, multi-phase large scale development deal, which is now a lot bigger now. that costs are three X what they were. Yeah. Um, so that helps. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> you know, the smallest deal I did, we bought a $7 million deal in Denver, Colorado, you know, which, you know, that's, that's the type of reach that we're all looking for right now is like, how do I get yield? I mean, that was, you know, an off market transaction with a good tenant and a really good infill location. But was it a good use of our time and resources? Probably not, but. But it was fun. Felt good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Good practice. Worth more now. <clears throat> Didn't you just say that people were going to be doing frequent smaller deals and now you already don't like the strategy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was confused. Pat, largest and smallest. So the largest was we acquired an 18-acre site in Brooklyn to do multi-story uh, industrial. And smallest was 50,000 square foot um, industrial deal outside of uh, Chicago. So I like working on small deals. Um, we did an $8 million deal in Northeast Atlanta last year, 70,000 feet. 
Um, and then our largest transaction was about a $300 million portfolio in the Southeast. Great. Uh, for the last question, I'm, I am going to ask you to keep it very brief. We're getting short on time, but I'll start with you, Gray. What's the most important lesson you learned from the pandemic? Does not have to be real estate related. It's truly impossible for me to work from my home. <laughs> Good. Pat? Uh, we, I learned that our organization can function very well um, working from home and interacting, and that makes me feel... <laughs> <laughs> That made me feel really good. But yes. in all honesty, I think um, everyone being back in the office has just been incredible and um, much prefer that. I learned that cardboard boxes have be, will become a problem for the United States in the next 10 years. The amount of that we're going to sit on my front porch on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> They're recyclable. Not fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I learned, um, I'm going to wax philosophical, I guess. Uh, there's always opportunity if you're willing to look for it. Very good. Uh, I mentioned that we'd like to allow time for questions from the audience. Uh, is there anyone who would like to raise a question to our distinguished panelists? Mm -hmm. Bob Rice. Well, Bob, I'll tell you, it's a moving target because, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're surprised every day uh, at the depths of the, where cap rates are going. But, um, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth, we, we always have compared ourselves to Southern California. How many basis points wide are we from Southern California? And I would tell you that the, the gap, the spread in those cap rates has come in from, say, 100 basis points two years ago to we're now transacting at levels where that spread may be 25 to 35 basis points in many cases. So uh, Dallas-Fort Worth has obviously become a highly preferred market and the pricing uh, that investors are willing to pay kind of highlights that, if you will. So I think, uh, unfortunately, we are getting close to the end of our time, so won't be able to take any more audience questions, but- You scared him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. at least for me. Uh, but we do want to thank everybody for coming. We hope you got a lot out of this. I uh, want to give a shout out to Christo Ray. There are pamphlets on each of your chairs. And uh, finally introduce Linda McMahon, the president and CEO of the Real Estate Council. And, and Linda will close us out. Thank you very much, Randy. Let's give them a hand of applause. Who knew uh, guys in industrial were so funny? Uh, and other than the joy I feel every time I come home and there's a box on my front porch, it was really great entertaining uh, uh, conversation today. So thanks for that. I appreciate that. Um, I'd like to thank you, Randy, for leading this. And Randy stepped in somewhat at the last minute, but we really do appreciate all the preparation and time it goes into doing this. For those of you who've done these programs before, you know it's it's, it's not just uh, standing up here and looking good, so it's actually real work. 
and we appreciate that. Uh, Gray, Pat, Mace, and Dale, thank you so much. We really appreciate your participation, and thanks for joining us. Again, thanks to our sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News. I know a lot of you are taking a little time off this summer, and well-deserved, because it's exhausting to be working from home, but now most of you are coming back in the office like we are. We are back in the office full-time, and we're super excited about that because while we did function, and I did, I think we did some great things this year, even though we were working remotely, it's nice to be able to look at everyone in the office and to see all of you coming through our office as well. Don't forget fight night. What day, Rick? September 30th. <laughs> uh, ALC class members who are here, stand up if you want to sell a raffle ticket. They're in the back. They will be happy to sell you a raffle ticket, $25 or five for 100. And uh, they want to crush last year's class in terms of competition. I know they're here, so thanks for doing that. And I hope you all have a great summer. We will be back on September 9th with, in this room with another great program. Thanks to Matt Ballard and his committee. And uh, thank you, Mike, and everybody else who's here. Have a great day. That's all for today's show. I'd like to again thank our panelists for their insights. Randy Baird of CBRE National Partners, Graydon Bouchouan of Nuveen Real Estate, Patricia Gibson of Banner Oak Capital Partners, Mace McClatchy of Black Creek Group, and Dale Todd of Stream Realty Partners. I'd also like to recognize and thank our event sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stuart Title, and the Dallas Morning News for their support of Speaker Series. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow Trek on social media for the latest from around the organization. We've put links to the podcast and our social handles in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.